what I'd love to see is like, if there are ways to build smaller footprint manufacturing facilities that are maybe a little bit more, uh, not on or off, but the ability to be flexible. We've, we've sort of under-prioritized for flexibility. And I think there's some opportunities to do that. Welcome to the Bright Ideas Podcast, where we discuss how brands build relationships with consumers and society through innovation, technology, and marketing. Bright Ideas is produced by the Center on Global Brand Leadership at Columbia Business School. I'm Matthew Quint, Director of the Center on Global Brand Leadership. And I'm JP Kuvine, Adjunct Faculty here at the school and Principal at Uber Brands Consulting. Bright Ideas is sponsored by Lexicon Branding, a specialized consulting firm that develops inspiring brand names and brand architectures for both the Fortune 500 and today's innovative startups and Kogan Page, an independent, award-winning publisher that delivers best practices and innovative thinking from global experts across every key business subject. Today, we're happy to be hosting Connor Wilson, founder and executive chairman of the Thursday Boot Company, a graduate of Columbia Business School, here on today's Bright Ideas podcast. We look forward to discussing entrepreneurship, the future of retail, and developing and adapting one's mission and purpose. Uh, welcome to the podcast today, Connor. It's uh, always great to have you involved in our work at the Center on Global Brand Leadership. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Connor. Well, I know Matt knows you, and you've uh, done guest appearances in the context of Bright before, but I do not. I know from you, though, that you are a Columbia alumni. You uh, have co-founded Thursday Boot, and can you put those two together for me and maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how it relates to Boot, and particularly one that you seem to have to wear on Thursdays? Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll give you the concise breakdown first. Um, uh, short, short version is that uh, I left college and, and decided to become an investor because I was really excited by learning and new ideas. And that was a really fun adventure. Uh, and in doing that, I joined a small firm that grew a lot. And that planted the seed of the idea uh, to say that, oh, wow, if I, if I start something small, if I can grow it really big. And so I, I had already uh, been thinking about starting something. Then I had seen it take, for, uh, take place firsthand and decided that business school was gonna be a good way to train myself to get ready for that. So after uh, six plus years of investing, uh, decided I was gonna to go to Columbia as a means of sort of accelerating my own development towards entrepreneurship. I didn't know if that was going to be a, a direct consumer, digitally native boot brand at the time, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm fortunate that I, I found that, that path while I was at Columbia. And how did you find the path? Did somebody, you just say, hey, I need, new boots and they're not around or is there is there a creation myth that you're leveraging as a brand yeah it's, it's so funny because uh, i always like to say that you know the the best epics are ones where you really weave a bunch of different uh character stories narratives together and it becomes the big the big story um there's a few of those one was i'm originally from colorado uh, I've been wearing cowboy boots since I was like six years old. Uh, the other was that when I was an undergrad, uh, I was on the track and cross country team. And I had a friend that started selling shoes through this, this fancy new website called Amazon. Uh, they had just started selling non-CDs, non-books, non-DVDs. And I was helping them write reviews for those shoes online back in 2003, 2004. Uh, so there's that. Um, but the probably the most direct one was that when I first arrived in New York, uh, I actually was wearing a, a pair of like Ariat cowboy boots and I almost fell down the subway steps 
because it was slick, the grates, the little metal parts on the edge of those uh, those stairs, and realized pretty quickly like this probably wasn't the right the right thing. So um, decided to get some rubber soled shoes. I was a graduate student, no longer making an income, and uh, didn't want to spend that much. The ones that I loved were uh, some combination of either too expensive. Uh, too uncomfortable, or the design was just weird and didn't really make sense. Uh, and then at the low end, you have these really cheap shoes, but they basically became trash within a few months. And so um, that was my first lesson in terms of like the consumer paradox. There just weren't very good decisions before we came around in terms of what you could get out of boots. And you weren't alone in that journey, right? You had you had some classmates that you had yeah. these conversations bubbled up with, right? Yeah, I, I was very fortunate. So the uh, part of my my cluster, your initial your initial cohort, uh, Nolan Walsh is my co-founder, and we we actually just are friends, and like that's where our relationship started. Um, but in the course of the first year, uh, we one like small story is that our first day of class, there's like orientation, and around the room, everyone, what do you want to be doing? Do you want to go into consulting? Do you want to go into working for large corporations? Do you want to do this? And everyone's raising their hands at different things. And then they say, oh, okay, who wants to be an entrepreneur? And in a, a cohort of about 75 people, there's like four of us. <laughs> and Nolan was one of them. And I was one of them. I'm like, oh, we should probably become friends or talk. Um, but it just kind of became very organic. And what was interesting was uh, I had had that experience in New York, plus all these other threads. Nolan's was a little bit more on the fact that we had gone on this, this trip. We went to Nicaragua for spring break and we were, we were surfing on the beach and talking. That was really one of our, our conversations that we realized between our first and second year of, of grad school that not only did we both want to start a company, but we decided we should probably do something together. And as, as fortune would have it, uh, he was at a bar with a, a gentleman wearing a pair of boots. He complimented him and said, oh, this is nice. The guy says, oh, I get these made. And there was that realization of, oh, you can make boots. And then we tied these things together. And, you know, what the, the big insight for us in the end that really kind of got us started was recognizing that direct consumer was this sort of novel concept where you could functionally build a product that was as good or better than all the existing products in the market because everyone else, every other brand was just going through the same factory network. And we could offer a direct consumer. And then in doing so, one is we could make a product that was better for our needs. Two is we could also offer it at roughly half the price. And that was such a compelling initial insight. You know, add to that now, we know a lot more about this. There's additional benefits. Like you can build a much tighter relationship with your customer. You have a lot more data, so you can be much more responsive in terms of new iterations. All those things are just, again, furthering that advantage already. But that initial flash of insight that you can make boots and you can do it in a better fashion in an industry that's been basically doing the same thing. And they're very proud of the fact that they've been doing it the same way for a hundred plus years. We love that. We got really excited. And, and, and in the end, what it came down to is we recognize if we don't do this, somebody else will. This is an inevitable idea. And we got really excited because we're like, we think we could actually be the ones to do it. Yeah, it reminds me, Connor, of uh, we hosted Neil Blumenthal, one of the co-founders of Warby Parker, right? Yeah. Very similar, right? These And, and others, you were peers, essentially, roughly at the same time in that recognition of, of sort of the, the increasing network effect and power of the internet and supply chain accessibility uh, that was growing. And like, oh my gosh, there's this whole opportunity to do something different than what the traditional players in any industry have done before. Yeah, we, we really love the contrast of, as an entrepreneur, you get to pick who your competition is. Before you get started, you get to decide what you're gonna do. And we really like the idea of going against this, this cohort of people that were 
almost like uh, it's one thing there's a lot to be proud of in terms of the heritage and, and the traditional craftsmanship. We still love that about the category, about boots in general. I love that about leather goods. Like there's so much that you can actually just really appreciate and enjoy as a, an aficionado, as a fan. Um, but as a, as a business person and as a competitor, there's nothing better than when you have a, a, a peer who refuses to innovate as part of their, their brand <laughs> identity. I thought that was always so backwards, you know, I was like, okay, you, you, you do you and we'll do us and we'll see how this plays out. Um, we didn't have any other advantages at the time. You just shook two of my stereotypes. One is that, um, you, you, you actually show that spring break can be very productive, even the bar part of it. <laughs> um, the, the, the second one, though, I, I have a question about, which is I often hear and I can kind of relate to people saying entrepreneurship and founding a company that flourishes is not something that you can learn or follow a recipe. Uh, yet it, it seems that you entered this with a lot of planning and determination. So are you contradicting that uh, perception that it cannot be planned and that there's a lot of luck and coincidence involved? I, I, think, I think the best way to put it would be that like chance favors the prepared mind where we, we didn't know in advance that we were gonna be creating a boot company. Right. So you know, we, we, we knew that we each wanted to independently, Nolan and I both knew that we wanted to start a business. That alone got us thinking on a different trajectory. Everyone else was, again, within our, our MBA cohort, you had people that were off interviewing and they were doing a bunch of doing a ton of work uh, on that same. And that's a that's a huge undertaking in its own right. We never bothered or wasted time on it. We were we were instead trying to get in front of of different founders and investors and just trying to like basically absorb that ecosystem. I'd worked for a, a tech startup that ended up getting bought by Walmart. Um, and by worked, I mean, I was basically begging them to let me help them set up meetings and do things. And you know, they, they sort of uh, helped there. But th these things all, that's what I'm kind of saying, like all those threads tie together. You're really just exploring for possibilities and chances. And sometimes you're lucky that an idea strikes and you say, wait a minute, this is actually something that's really authentic to me where I think I have unique insight where I think that I could actually accomplish this in a way that either that other people can't or that I uniquely am able to, to create and add value. And so for us, it was, um, I would just say like, you know, we had so many bad ideas too, right? I, I used to keep a notebook with just bullet points of like, here's a really dumb idea of that maybe, and, and the hope that maybe it evolves or morphs into something. This was one of those though, that just became super concrete. And the more I started thinking and digging into it, we, we just started getting more and more excited. You know, sometimes you, you, it looks good on paper, and then you you dig and you go, oh, that was not really good. This is one that has actually, frankly, just gotten more fascinating with time. The initial insight was that like the, the boot market was totally broken and, and we wanted to build that perfect transitional boot, really versatile, like Thursday, the day of the week. And then once we, we jumped into that pond, we realized there was just so much room to swim. Yeah, dive into the dive into the name for a moment. I'll, I'll steal. JP loves you know, the dream, the myth, I'm going to steal a little from him uh, just in the, in the moment, uh, I, you know, as, as his thinking, um, which I have too, uh, but we usually let him dive. But give us that, that sort of Thursday boot that added not just boot, but a specific like sort of ethos around the type of boot that you wanted to create. Yeah, I, I think, well, I, I always joke, but there's some truth to this. It was actually, uh, you know, Thursday was when happy hour was in business school, right? So um, we, we really love this idea that Thursday is a very transitional day of the week where you're going from like, you have work, you have real responsibility and things to do during the daytime. But at night, you're going to go out with your friends and you're going to you're gonna do things. And maybe it's dinner, maybe it's you're going out to the bar, maybe you're going out to a sports game, whatever. But you need this very versatile and transitional 
piece of footwear that's going to kind of work. And that was also the issue that we had identified within the boot market. You had these very clunky kind of construction type workwear boots, uh, either de facto or, or kind of mocking that style, or you had these very dressy European uh, boots, or you just had weird, like weird stuff, just ugly shoes, basically. And we love this idea of something that was sophisticated enough that you could wear it out on a date or to a business meeting. It was tough enough and, 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 and could also handle the weather so that, you know, whatever happens, like you're covered. And it just becomes that kind of like everyday boot that you can wear at all times. And we thought that like Thursday just perfectly encapsulated the form and the function of the boot. Uh, and what was great is that as soon as we, we started saying, I would say, look, Thursday is the unofficial start of the weekend. Everyone would kind of go, oh, oh, that's great. Uh, and the last thing I loved about it is that I can say that to, to 100 different people. And everyone has like a slightly different perception of that. It's, it's something that is specific enough that everyone understands why it's called Thursday Boot Company, but it's not something that is exclusive. It's still very much like inclusive. And, and yet we can have different interpretations of that. And what's beautiful about that is you end up getting um, a product that's really accessible to a lot of people uh, and they feel like they're in the know uh, without feeling like you're trying to like go over their heads with something. So um, yeah, it was just, just worked out nicely. It's wonderful how founders and, and brand owners keep actually coming up with the language that uh, that we describe often in, in this model, because you said there are people who then felt that they're in the know. We call them uber target in the sense that they're not traditional, uh, traditionally just the, the people you want to sell your product to, but at the same time, they're a little bit of a muse and they become the kind of disciples that spread the word of mouth. They become so excited about your product. Um, so I wanted to ask you about those. Um, and, and Matt filled me in on, on a piece of information about the company that interests me, which is he said that you use Kickstarter um, to start up the company. And I always felt that Kickstarter is much more than a financing tool or a test whether your idea is big enough. But at the same time, it is kind of ground zero of building up a passionate support group, if you like. Did you experience that? Kickstarter funding in that way as well. Yeah, we, we reached a very similar conclusion early on, but but with the the, the one caveat that we didn't have any money, <laughs> so, so so you really needed it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> let, let's just like wind back the clock a little bit. Uh, you know, we had had previous uh, professional careers, and but now we are basically like kind of broke grad students with no experience in fashion, e-commerce, footwear. Footwear is very complex. There's a lot of things that make it harder in many ways. It's like almost like uh, an engineering project. Uh, anyway, so all those things, and, and we, we, we just, that was it. So we needed, a, we didn't have anyone who's going to take a bet on us. We actually kind of didn't think that anyone should, because what have we proven? And so for us, the reason we like Kickstarter was it was a way to, to prove to ourselves a little bit, like, can we actually pull this off? Can we do this? Um, and can we get people excited about it? Because the more we thought about it, we, we got more excited, not less excited over time. So uh, one, are we, are we just fooling ourselves and we're in this little echo chamber or is this actually a, an idea that has traction? And then the other big benefit was that, yeah, you get, you get some cash in the door, which we could then use to recycle and then get things started. Um, one thing we loved about the Kickstarter audience in general is we had, we had identified that as uh, having a, a group of, of people that are, there's people that really get excited about the novelty and the newness. And like, there's a, there's a different level of support. There's really, it's, it's actually a very wonderful group of people where if you think about it, if you're someone who's excited about Kickstarter and checks it regularly, besides just being pulled in by a, a friend who knows this, you, you are someone who's functionally willing to take bets on founders and new on entrepreneurs and to do so at very generous terms. You're doing so as a customer where there's a lot of trust. 
And I just like, one, I love that type of a person in general. They're, they're generous and they're open and they, they're willing to kind of give you the benefit of the doubt, which I thought was great. The, the flip side is that so many people had abused that and Kickstarter is notorious for all kinds of failures and delays and everything else. Our thought was the opposite, which is if we can get this great group of people and then we can over deliver and actually do what we say we're going to do, that is a great core to kind of get us started. So it just filled all these things at once. And, and I, I think that, that picking that customer base was actually really beneficial for, for who we are to start, but also who we became as a brand. Talk a little bit. It, it, it seems like there's part of the company is utilizing the audience for suggestions on yeah. shoe styles and other things. So talk through that. Talk through the where we are now and how the audiences continue to grow and be a part of the brand. You know, yeah, I think part of this stems from the fact that, again, we, we, we as consumers had felt like we were very, we were kind of lost. Like they, they were, we were kind of orphaned by the, the brand is, or the, the, the ecosystem as it existed. By the market. And so we weren't being served by these brands. And for us, we've always viewed it as, you know, we are, our, we're always our first customer. So anything that we're putting out there, we first have to be really excited about. But this idea too, that we need to be listening to our customers because we're not right all the time. And in this idea that, that we are going to be better and stronger as a business, if we are first and foremost, prioritizing our customers and customer experience. So when our customers come and they say, look, I love this product, or I wish you would do this. I think a lot of folks just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, okay, we're going to move on to the next thing. For us, we, we take it as data. Uh, we can't do everything we want to, but we take it as data. And what's interesting is that more often than not, if you listen to your customers, you actually do start to see signal versus noise. And they've led us towards a lot of directions that I don't think I would have, personally, I wouldn't have been able to point their way and say, oh, we should do this, this, and this. But by listening to those customers, we've actually found additional avenues for growth. We've been able to improve our products and create like things that I've like, even our first year, I'm super proud of what we put out, but the product we have now is just like so infinitesimally better. And, you know, think about what we'll be doing in 10 years. We'll probably you know be embarrassed all over again, but uh, that is uh, almost goes into like this lean and those, the culture of your business in our DNA, it is so culture, so customer centric to just make sure that we're using that. And I think one big advantage of our business model is that we get that data. I mean, Literally, we read every piece of consumer feedback we can get, positive, negative, in between. And I know for a fact that the larger legacy brands, A, are not doing it, and B, they're not able to do it. They don't have the, the system that allows them to sort of hoover up all this input and then use it to basically make better decisions going forward because they're not hearing it in the first place. Uh, whereas for me, like I'm still on the retail show floor just talking to customers every week, every two weeks, just hi, hi, how you doing? Uh, we're online all the time, interacting with people. Uh, it really forces you to, to stay true to your mission statement. So that's why we, we enjoy that. Now, you, you talked about culture and business model. And it's interesting because a lot of founders that I've talked to and that are in your area of, you know, fashion, accessories, shoes, etc. With a similar attitude of listening to the customer, bespoke, uh, following kind of uh, their uh, needs there would go to the, the premium route, you know, would say that costs something, etc. I think in your website, even you are quite clear and you're proud of saying below $200, very specific price point. Is, is that because you ultimately your goal is to scale and being big and continuing to grow is a main 
cultural as well as business objective, or is that also some kind of mission-driven uh, 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 guideline? How, how, how do we need to understand that? I think it starts from the, we have the very strong belief that our customers are smart and we treat them that way. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of brands make is they focus so much on the, we'll call it like the, the glitz or the glamour, they forget about the substance. And so we actually start with the substance and then everything else stems from that. Uh, in terms of like pricing strategy as an example, we're actually like, we actually have our, our goods range from 129 up to, you know, 265. So we're, we're going to continue to, that, that'll evolve over time. I expect, you know, inflation is a great example where we sit in 2022, where, where, you know, I don't know what our prices will look like five or 10 years from now, but I do know that we're always going to be focused mm -hmm. on providing a really excellent value to the customer. Okay. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be the cheapest, but it also doesn't mean it means that it's, value is that it's, you know, what price is what you pay and then value is what you get. So wherever we start, it's always with where can we build best product period. So we're finding the factories, we're finding the people that can help us build this the system that we want. And if we do that consistently and then price it in a fashion where we're ensuring that the customer gets great value, those guys are going to come back. They're going to be repeat customers. They're going to be loyal to our brand. That's the bet that we're making. Okay. And if we fall short on that, then it's, you know, woe is us. If we're correct though, we think what that ends up meaning is that the output will be growth. The input is respecting your customers, providing excellent products, providing great value. And it also goes into our organization, our whole team. There's a lot of stuff you don't see in a pair of boots. And that ranges from the quality of your finance operations to your customer care team, to your logistics and your operations. By operating everything efficiently and, and pushing everyone on our team to raise the bar consistently, we are able to create this output, which is an excellent boot that feels very kind of seamless for the customer. And the, the end result will be growth. Um, so the, the, that's a long-winded way of saying we're trying to really focus on, on not necessarily prioritizing uh, what I'd say like profitability or growth today, but in the future. And we're really long-term focused. We think that if we make the right decisions today, the, the growth will take care of itself. And, and that's how it should be, by the way, versus trying to engineer some artificial short-term top-line target or raise a bunch of money or do things that are basically against our interest or against the customer's interest, trying to juice it. That's stuff that we're just not interested in. That's right. It brings up a few things. One, I wonder, do you, Connor, you, you're a private, privately owned company. You have very limited uh, VC funding. I think you did a Series A round, right, back five years ago or something like that. Yeah. We've, we've raised institutional capital. And, and one thing, like, we don't talk about it. And it's not because we have anything to hide. It's just for the fact that, and this goes back to kind of culture. We think one of the problems right now within startup land is that everyone gets really excited about, like, the TechCrunch article or I'm on the magazine cover. Um, look, I think Noel and I would be, our, our moms would be very proud about that, okay? <laughs> our moms are also investors. Those are some of our institutional investors. Nolan's mom and my mom, but um, including some Columbia Business School professors as well, too, which we're, we're very fortunate to have. Um, but part of the reason we don't share it is, one, is like, we don't think our customers care about it. We don't think it results in a better product. Two is, I think, uh, from a team and an organizational standpoint, it actually ends up sending the wrong messages. Like, I don't want everyone that I work with to be focused on the valuation of the business. I want them focused on providing better quality product to better customer or in a better manner to our customers so that everyone's happy. Because, again, that will take care of itself. And I think the other thing, the, the, the third thing too, is like, if you really want to build a good, high quality enduring brand, you have to find ways to do so 
that don't require you to spend a bunch of capital. That's just, that's like kind of business 101. In the end, your output has to be higher than your total inputs. And I think where we're running into a lot of trouble in the world today is there are brands that have built themselves uh, assuming that, you know, there's always going to be external capital. And I think they do that in a way that frankly shortchanges customers as well as the internal team, as well as the investors. So um, we've raised some outside capital, not a lot, very little actually. We're very proud of that. Uh, and what's nice about that is it's it's allowed us to continue running this as a private business where we can continue to make those long-term decisions. So we're never in a position where I've got someone leaning over my shoulder telling me to do something that I know is against the best interests of the customer, the team, or us. Instead, we can do what's best for everyone and do so on a sustainable basis. So let, let, let me take on that, that marketing hat then and you know, tease apart what, what you already told us. You're very customer focused. You want to deliver good value. Um, you deliver a good shoe. You try to minimize the capital in order to enable that. Um, you take inspiration from key customers that have given you insights. Um, a classic marketer would step back and say, check, 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 check. That That is the formula. But on the other hand, where is the, what we all talk about differentiation what really makes you different how come you know other boot companies would not do the same thing uh, strategies supposedly are choices that are not intuitive and not you know self-explanatory which company would say i want to make a lousy shoe make it expensive not listen <laughs> to my customer and spend a hell of a lot of money on it jp you don't know the footwear industry uh, i mean like <laughs> One of the hardest things when we first got started was, you know, we, we were complete uh, neophytes. We didn't know what we were doing. And we we're like walking in and everywhere we went, they just kept trying to like cut costs out of the total production, cut costs here. This will do this, this, this. And, you know, and functionally, it's how you end up with shoes that are made with just crappy materials. And the reason for that is because the industry for so long, that was what it was. And either you're going to, you know, bulk production somewhere in Asia, or if you're not in Asia, if you're in North America or in Europe, which is where most of our production is, you, you then are trying to compete with Asia. So then they're used to just like shaving pennies off of it. And the issue with that is like, there are ways you could spend money in ways that don't make the shoe fundamentally better. But there are plenty of ways where you need to invest in the quality of the product. Otherwise you end up with something bad. So I generally would say, you're right. No one wants to make a bad product. And yet the industry had been doing that for a long time because of a little bit of its globalization, but also part of it too, is because it's primarily a wholesale model, which means that if you put a dollar of investment within the, the product, you end up having to charge you know, two to four X or more sometimes to make up that cost at wholesale because the brand is selling to the retailers going there. And so you're just in the spot where and it's just weird, it will distorted incentives were the real thing. So where do I think like we, we actually made a difference or how was our strategy different? One is that we were, we, things had just veered so far on that pathway that we were able to come back and say, wait a minute, you guys, you guys lost the thread. This is where we're supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be really high quality product to start with. Start there, number one. Two, uh, because we have this digitally native model, we are by, just think about the data that you get. A good example would be if you're selling into like say a department store, which a lot of digitally native brands are now starting to do, which I think is kind of a risky strategy for a few different reasons. Um, and we've tested this in the past. You make a large purchase up front and you don't get the feedback from customers until months later when it's all sold through. The, the third party that you're not directly in control of is talking about your brand in ways that you can't control. Uh, they may or may not share the data back with you. So you could sell a you could sell a thousand shoes and you don't even know if people liked them or not, right? Um, that ends up being like a big 
disadvantage. And just the thing about the time that it takes, you build something in January, it gets on shelves in say October, you sell through it by February and suddenly you're in, you know, you're right two cycles behind. One thing that we did that was really interesting is we've, we've really prioritized flexibility. And part of it was that we knew that we were going to need to iterate over time to move quickly. Part of it was that we were small and we knew that we had the, the advantage of being able to, we weren't in the elephant, we we're the mouse. So you got to go really, really quickly instead be nimble. And we found that over time, being able to do lots of flexible production was really helpful for us. It allowed us to, to implement changes on the fly so we could make product changes where we needed to. We could introduce new SKUs. We also weren't in a position where we were tied to any one given release where it was sink or swim, whether something worked or didn't work. And that allowed us to test and to iterate. And, and basically we, we kind of view this as like, it's like the shoe laboratory. We call, if you come to the store, there's actually a room just outside of it, which is where we do a lot of our design and sampling. We call it the workshop. And it is very much this idea that we're, we're just trying to play with data and find new uses for it. Um, and then the third thing that I'll, I'll point out, and those are like the structural factors that I think it's like, a, a refocus on quality, and then these structural factors that make a digitally native model just frankly faster, better, more nimble than a traditional legacy wholesale model. The third thing, and it's it's sort of like the secret sauce and the thing that you'll just have to take my word for it, but we're very big on culture in terms of everyone has to be constantly raising the bar and getting better. And the idea is that if every year, everyone in our organization can make a 5% improvement in terms of what they're doing, whether that's an efficiency uh, uh, output, costs, just doing things better, delivering more value, making someone smile. It depends on what your function is, right? But if we can do that and get a little bit better every year, it doesn't look that much, it doesn't look that interesting over a one or two year period, you say whatever. But the power of compounding is that and we're now in our eighth or ninth year, I guess. Uh, you know, that actually is a way where you suddenly start to get 30 or 40 or 50% better than your competition because we never we never made the mistakes. We didn't just raise a bunch of money and throw it at that and hope it would work. We said from the get-go, we're going to treat this like every dollar that comes in, we're going to we're going to treat it really carefully. Every customer that comes in, we're going to make sure that that we we hug them and make sure that we keep them close. And I think, and I hope I'm right on this, that over a long period of time, that will be our mode. So nice, right? Push to stakeholder capitalism kind of ethos, not that you're a shareholder owned company, but it's uh you're getting at a lot of the short-term versus long-term thinking in the way you've you've built Thursday Boot, Thursday Boot Company. Um, talk a little bit, Connor, about the supply chain, right? And and some of the commitments around uh, where products are sourced, sustainability issues. These are all a big part of consumer desires. Now, whether they follow through in actual behaviors, we know is quite mixed. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a growing attention throughout, you know, business and society. How did you guys think about sourcing, think about supply chain? Where do you stand with all of that now? The number one thing I think that, that gets lost in sustainability, and I think it needs to start here, actually, you need to have a sustainable business first. Okay. And that, that is such a simple, like, it's not even that exciting. It's a little boring in some ways, but there's a big difference between doing something that is, it looks really flashy and it's exciting versus something that's going to basically stand the test of time. We're really trying to build a legacy business and a legacy brand by which we mean, we want, we want this business to be around for hundred years. And to do so, you have to make sure that you're able to, to basically do the, the, just the core functions of the business without having to make weird decisions. And we see sometimes that happens, unfortunately. In terms of like the more traditional ESG or environmental responsibility, much more of the viewpoint that I think that, that, that there are a lot of folks that frankly lean into it too hard and they either overstate what they're saying or, or it sometimes feels like greenwashing. 
And uh, I'd say we care about the environment uh, as much or, or maybe just a little bit less than everyone else, uh, which is to say, like, I would much rather undersell what we're doing and then just do it a little bit better, if that makes sense. So the way that we view it is very pragmatic. We, we, we were happy. Like, we work with the best tanneries in North America. Um, most of our, our, our hides were doing like tier one U.S. cattle, um, which is just good quality leather, period. Good quality hide. That's then put in these different tanneries. We've got Horween, Chicago, Lafarque in Leon, Mexico. Um, and those are going to be, you know, and a bunch of other tanneries. But what we're looking for is we're looking for those that are environmentally responsible. Part of it's because it lets us sleep at night. We feel good. Um, but the other big part is just that that's where you get the better leather. So, you know, there's a nice confluence of these factors where it works out. Um, in terms of our manufacturing as well, we're doing it mostly it's in, it's in, in we got the US, Mexico's are our main base of operations, Portugal, Spain, uh, we will be expanding to other countries over time. And so as we do that, when we think about sustainability, it's not just materials and environmental impact, it's also the people that you're working with. And so what is that? I want to work with a factory where the, the factory floor is clean, it's safe, the people are paid living wages, and we're in a good position where we know that that factory is going to again, be sustained. It's going to continue to, to work. Allows me to focus on the long-term, allows them to focus on the long-term. So it's not this like do-gooder altruism as much as it is just it's a good way to do business. And that's how we kind of focus things. We also have done a few things that I think are like, I don't know, I, I can't say the impact's been as big as I want it to be, but we did this thing like the single herd program a few years ago, which is right down the center of, of you know, do-gooding, uh, as it were. We found a carbon, not carbon neutral, but a carbon recapturing farm in Georgia. We took those hides, we had them tanned at Horwin in Chicago, we had them built at our, our U.S. factory, all made in the U.S., and it was the first uh, herd to boot program. No one's ever done this before. We were super excited. And uh, and then, you know, two weeks later, Timberland called up and said to the farm, we'll take all your hides. <laughs> so uh, what I liked about that was, I don't know if like the single herd program is going to be the thing that defines Thursday Boot Company, but I think it is one of those items where you will see uh, over time, I think that it's, it's, it's an option to push the rest of the industry to move in that direction and sort of see what's possible. So that's just another test. It's another iteration. It, it gets us excited. It's, it's something that's fun. So I, I don't know. I, and a lot of the stuff that we do, frankly, is, is also just for us. Sometimes, you know, you, you just let your passions kind of follow you or you, you follow your passions down a path and you hope that it takes you where, you know, somewhere interesting. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I think the key is as you're doing it, don't overstate your case. So we're, we're very much, a, I'd rather show than tell it when it comes to sustainability. Matt and I are swapping jobs here. I want to ask you another su su supply chain question, actually. Um, <clears throat> I happened to, to talk to somebody at Hermes uh, very recently, and, you know, they, they said one of the things that differentiates them is, you know, ever-increasing uh, vertical integration, horizontal growth, but they're particularly proud of, you know, controlling uh, not only the craftsmanship, but the sourcing of the product, et cetera, et cetera. Two-folded question here, because I understand you work with, I guess, independent tanneries, independent manufacturers, you source across multiple countries, et cetera. First question is, how did you, and, and, and you said you, ha, you showed quite some agility, you know, and flexibility in terms of your SKU development, in terms of more just-in-time manufacturing uh, versus those big quantities ahead of time in the industry. Um, how did you find places that were willing to be flexible enough for you to say, well, I have a small quantity run. I can't tell you yet how much it's going to be. 
uh, and I also might have more SKUs coming up or I might change the one that I just placed with you in a couple of weeks because we're going to get input uh, and feedback very soon. So how did you do that? And B, this happening elsewhere, somebody else's tannery, somebody else's shop, doesn't that feel uncomfortable in terms of saying this is our boot and this is what makes us unique? How, how do you manage this outsourcing relationship versus owning the product? Yeah, I know. Mean, so the, the the short answer is not easily. I mean, we we everyone else does it the opposite way. Everyone else is trying to cut costs on product. Everyone's trying to be as bulk bulk shipment focused as possible. And and uh, we 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 just didn't believe in that. Plus, we weren't we weren't really in a position to do it. So it, it was like the beauty of necessity and strategy. Just we're we're moving in the same direction. Uh, the way that I would I would categorize it is, and this goes back to when I say sustainability, it's not just about clean working environment, safe working environment. It also goes into the caliber of the people that you're working with. So it's not just that the factory produces a beautiful product. I also have to trust the person on the other end. They also have to be willing to work with me. And we have to we have to reach an accommodation basically where I say, you can imagine as a factory owner, you're like, why? Oh my gosh, this is such a hassle. Why would I do this? And so for us to be able to explain and, and kind of basically contour that vision and say, this is why this is going to work. And this is why it's going to work for you and for me. And here's, there's some trade-offs that are involved, but here's how we're going to make this go. Um, it definitely wasn't easy. I mean, it was, it was the hardest thing we had to do. I mean, and again, we also just think about how, how tough this was, especially the first couple of years. Uh, and the, the, the possibility of failure was very high. It's gotten easier <clears throat> because we've shown that it works. We now have empirical evidence that yes, if you bet on us, this is going to be a winning bet and here's how we can get ahead. Um, so that's gotten easier over time, but it's never super easy. Um, and then the second part of the question was, sorry, in terms of you're not controlling your, yeah. your supply chain. I, I, think, I think it goes back to like, for, for me, I, I worry less about, I mean, I, on some level, I could envision us at some point or another actually being more invested vertically in our supply chain. I could, I could totally see that being a good idea. Um, and it's, it's certainly an option in the future. Uh, so I'm not opposed to it. And it's something we've been discussing from day one. Um, again, in the, when, in the beginning, you, we don't even have the option. So it's, it's just sort of like a flight of fancy. But going forward, I think it could be an opportunity. Why do we feel comfortable in terms of what we're doing? Because we're not just producing shoes. It's really this whole experience. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about this idea of what is the moat. I think we do everything about 5% better every year. And I think that there are other near peer uh, brands that that are not advancing at the same rate that we are. And so consequently, I think we're not just getting better, but we're also getting better faster. Uh, I won't name the brand, but we had uh, someone, who, a large established legacy brand uh, that thought it would be a good idea to, to basically go into one of these factories that was already producing products for us. And we produce our products alongside theirs, right? It's kind of fair game on one hand, but they were basically taking uh, leather that we had rejected uh, and putting it into theirs and, you know, Price point was the same. It's, the marketing was like really ham-handed, but that was their attempt to kind of come in and you know try to do the kill shot, and it hasn't worked. And you know I might rue the day that I say this because maybe it will eventually. But our view is that they don't fundamentally understand the customer. They don't understand a primarily digital uh, space, which is where we've gotten very good at, at, at learning that. I don't think their customer service can compare to ours. I don't think that they're they're retail stores because they don't own and operate. They don't have that same experience there. Uh, I also think we're just better at like an, uh, financials. Like we, we, we're smarter in how we spend our money and we, we really watch it carefully. So all those things, which again, if you're the customer, you don't even see it, but you, but it does make it into the final product. Um, 
so that's how I think of it. I think I think also longer term too. There's just there's a big difference. Like we design our shoes. We don't just like pick one on the wall and say I'll take that in brown. We're really in the nitty gritty on this, and and we're very very nerdy about everything from eyelets to laces to rubber compounds to insole development and Texon and and all the fun things that you can get excited about. Like we just love learning and testing, and that has yielded some really cool products. But it also means that we're pretty formidable, not just us as founders and then us as an organization. Um, so it just makes it a little bit harder to replicate that that thing that we've built because we've been kind of building a, a mode around it. Oh my, you've used the digital world a word. I know Matt is going to jump on you now. <laughs> my immediate thought was just about the way you talk about all the elements of the organization contributing to why you're a successful brand, which is exactly what we, you know, I mean, that's right at the heart of what we focus on at the brand center is it's, you know, marketing communications is still in many people's minds, still a bit of where they think of brand as the most important point, but culture, finances, supply chain operations are as effective to delivering on the promise to your, you know, customers and stakeholders as anything else. So I love hearing how you talk about it. Uh, That's great. I think you've done a lot with talking about marketing data and analytics uh, from that sense. I wonder, you know, you, uh, one quick question, let's do a like sort of future of retail in your perspective, right? You have thursdayboots.com. Uh, I imagine that's still probably your primary source of sales, but you have your Thursday boot company page within Amazon now. What is that sort of the development of e-commerce and how DTC brands, where do you see that now and moving forward to the future um, in this blend of the platform versus self-owned, self you know, my own platform versus being playing on the big marketplaces where people go to buy stuff? I think what a lot of like brand owners make the mistake of is they, they, they kind of focus on their own preference as opposed to what customers want. I think a lot of customers just like, they don't really care where it comes from. They just want to be able to get it. Uh, and, and there are some trade-offs that come with that. I think Amazon's interesting for the fact that for every person that, you know, on the one hand, Amazon can be an opportunity to, to find more discovery, especially for new and emerging brands. And, and Amazon has done a good job of highlighting that in the past. Uh, but the flip side is that they've also ripped off a lot of those brands too. So it's been, um, it's been like a very, uh, those are dangerous waters to sail into. You've also seen legacy brands like Nike very, very publicly uh, in 2019 said, we're going to be exiting Amazon uh, and we're going to, we're not going to be doing this anymore. And that was after years of courtship trying to get them to stay. So uh, I think that, that Amazon is best viewed as a double-edged sword and something to be, to be held very lightly. Uh, for ourselves, we, we think it's important to, to have some presence there just because people are shopping within the category and it's a good, good way to get that exposure. There are some customers who prefer Amazon over, over us still. I think that changes over time and we'll see how that evolves. Um, and then I think also that there's, there's like something nice about a, a review-based system. We do really well on reviews in the sense that like our product is is good. <laughs> we do a nice job, and and there's something beautiful about like being able to see like here here's what it is. Um, so we we like that for that reason. I, I would also say that at the same time, like I, I personally am a little skeptical, and we'll we'll continue to just sort of like play it by ear. Um, the good news is it's it's really a minority strategy for us. Not a it's not a, it's a secondary, not not primary. And I think um, you know we'll we'll see how it goes. Great. Uh, let's slide that. A little bit into then, you know, the name of our podcast, right? Bright Ideas Podcast. So uh, we've been asking each of our guests, and we sort of 
prompted you with this, you know, what do you think of as, you know, give an example of a bright idea that you have for the future, whether it's within your industry category, retail, generally something else going on in the world that you think is important to, you know, create a, a make the both businesses and society better off moving forward. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this is where I get over my skis pretty fast, right? I'm always, always trying to, you'll notice there's a theme here. I'd rather just kind of undersell a little bit and let it, let the rest take care of it. I think one, one area that I think is, is ripe for disruption is still manufacturing. I'm still kind of shocked at like, uh, we're talking a lot about it in a post pandemic world as well too, in, in terms of national security, in terms of convenience, in terms of survivability, meaning you need to have like a, a, a backup system for everything as well, because sometimes a baby formula uh, factory gets closed down. Uh, it's it's good to have those sort of, um, this back. Resilience. Resilience is very important. And, and it's funny because it, it, redundancy is like very important within aerospace as an example. Airplanes have multiple redundant systems. So if one fails and it's like having two parachutes. So we, we as a country need that here in the United States, but then also, I think there's also a lot of opportunities to bring more efficiency. So as an example, we, we've always been a North America predominantly focused manufacturing business. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of advantages to doing so. We were able to visit and be in our factories. Like we have people in our factories every day of the week, but we're also able to spend time and get there real quickly. It means we're closer with our partners. It means that the time to transport's faster, which means that your shipping costs are lower. Um, there's a lot of advantages. So what I'd love to see is like, if there are ways to build smaller footprint manufacturing facilities that are maybe a little bit more, uh, not on or off, but the ability to be flexible. We've, we've sort of under-prioritized for flexibility. And I think there's some opportunities to do that. Footwear may not be the case. There's a lot of folks who've tried this and failed uh, because it's a very manual process. It requires really skilled, very skilled labor. Um, these, are, these are craftsmen who, who really know their role well. And there's over 200 steps just to create a pair of boots, which is something most people probably don't realize. Like, and each one of those is very different from the leather cutting to the stitching to the Goodyear welt to the lasting. All that is its own thing. But I do think within retail and within consumer goods that there are opportunities to find low footprint plants that can actually do more locally. 3D printing is going to be part of that. Automation is going to be part of that. Um, and I think also another thing we don't always take into account, but like energy prices are also really important. In the United States, uh, we're not there today in this current inflationary environment, but from a long-term perspective, uh, we have the ability and the opportunity to have very low cost manufacturing because of the energy inputs here if we make the right policy decisions. So I, I would be bullish on that. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be, it won't be the heavy industry that we used to have, but I think there's some opportunity there. Uh, and I'm, I'm just interested to see where it plays out. You know, often when I think about the emergence of the DTC brands, of the founder myth and, and the energy against that, um, and about, and listen to what you just said in terms of, you know, bringing manufacturing back, maybe even making it distributed manufacturing. It seems to me like a flashback almost where a lot of these developments seem to undo the concentration, mass manufacturing, scaling, one-to-many relationships, et cetera, that we've seen with industrialization, you know, because it seems like uh, some of the founder dreams are really about knowing your customer again. It's almost like the, 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 the butcher, baker, candlestick maker kind of village again, where you know where your stuff comes from and the people who manufacture it do it with pride and know their customers. 
Does that make sense to you when you hear that? It does in some ways. I, I think I, I can also give you a counterexample too, which is um, there's a great little, this is more factoid because I, I, I haven't studied this in a while, but uh, after World War II, the United States had some of the most efficient steel production in the world. It had these big giant blast furnaces. And my grandfather was at uh, Bethlehem Steel. He was a safety engineer there after, after the war. And so um, you know, we were, it was the pride of, of the world basically. And what ended up happening was when uh, we rebuilt Japan, uh, you actually ended up having these electric arc furnaces. It was relatively new technology. They were smaller. Uh, they were easier to turn on and off. So when prices got higher or low, you could be really responsive. And ended up being that that was actually the better business model longer term. And so you couldn't turn these blast steel furnaces off because it didn't make sense. They, they weren't, they didn't work that way. You got to keep them going. So I think what it is more is that we're in a similar position now where it's just that things are at these different, I can think about computers too, actually, you know, IBM mainframes, and then you got this, and now we're back to the cloud. So um, it, some things do ebb and flow because the technology and, and, and the economy changes. Uh, so it's, some of that is, is correct. It's just sort of, you got to kind of pick the opportunities that are in front of you. You could argue that we're doing like the Sears catalog. It's just that it's omnipresent because it's online. So I, I actually view it very much as a throwback. And I think one thing that we also have to look at is like some things are changing and then some things are not. And I think that's the key is like you, you, the thing that's always going to be omnipresent is, and especially for a consumer brand too, your relationship with your customer is always going to be predominant. That's like the number one thing that you have to understand and own and take super seriously. And that never changed. It's just that people kind of lost sight of it at different points or people that right. did don't exist. So I don't think in that way, I don't think it's new. I just think it's, these are the timeless, like these are the time-worn principles that you have to adhere to if you want to be successful broadly. And then, right. and then there's some things that have changed where the flavor is a little different because of where we are in the world today. And maybe 30 years from now, it'll be back to full efficiency. Um, I might even be changing my tune eventually. Uh, all I know is based on the adventure that we've been on so far, this is how it's played out for us. And I'm glad that we made the decisions we did because I think they were rational then. And I think they, they played out well. Right. So maybe famously, you know, it doesn't repeat itself or is uh, going back to it often rhymes. But yes. it rhymes and it evolves, yes. which brings us to the last question, which is you create a brand. You clearly have this vision that it will be there, that it is there to stay and it will be admired. What's a brand that inspires you or at least that you admire, to which extent maybe you use it as an example. Um, can you tell us about that? I, this is a little uh, geeky, but uh, like I'm, I'm a huge fan of Nike. I am um, track and cross country guy to start with. Uh, Steve Prefontaine and Bill Bowerman were kind of, you know, we, we kind of grew up reading and, and listening to that. I think every track runner has a, a Prefontaine quote on their wall somewhere. <laughs> uh, but but what I also love is, um, you know, Phil Knight uh, and, and the team that he built around. This is the thing too, is there's a lot of people that, they, we love lionizing the the, the founder and, and it's it's a lot of work, but it's a team effort. It's a team sport. And I think it's important to recognize that. And we, we definitely do so here. But what Phil Knight did there is just, and his team did, they, they were against the odds all along the way. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read Shoe Dog uh, or Swoosh, which is an unauthorized biography of the company, it's just, it's just so crazy to think about what they built. And it was from very, very humble beginnings, a lot of risk, a lot of work, and yet it's become this powerhouse. And I also just love the ethos of, of this sort of the, the rebel underdog, which has consistently been part of what they've done well. Uh, it's not a perfect brand. There's things I can say, ah, but uh, I think they've always been uh, ahead of things. And even now, as I watch them evolve into a, a, a legacy brand that is trying to prioritize direct consumer, which I think is the right strategy, 
I just find myself constantly uh, in awe of them as a business and a brand. And um, doesn't get much better. Let me ask a follow-up question. One is, you know, Nike gets mentioned by everyone. I just start class. I started tomorrow and I usually ask students, what's one of your favorite brands and why? I know Nike will guarantee, is guaranteed to be among those brands. Interestingly, McDonald's, Apple's are the other, you know, two ones. McDonald's, okay. Uh, Disney, correct. But let me ask you this question about Nike, which is, what fascinates you, you know, the Oregon running team, uh, you know, uh, the waffle, uh, you know, being a, a track person yourself, aren't you shocked or even disgusted then to some extent when you think about Nike today and what seems to drive it, which is limited edition drops, collaboration with hip hop artists, street fashion that it has no functionality, you wouldn't be able to run in this stuff. It'll it'll fall apart at minimum, it will be so uncomfortable, you wouldn't even get close to your, your best time. How do you feel and think about that being such a Nike fan? Uh, well, no, you're, you're wrong. Their running shoes were the ones that originally fell apart. They had the, the tailwind. They, they gave it to their, their half marathon athletes in Hawaii and it, it shredded. They, they, you know, there's, there's been plenty of instances and if you're trying to innovate, you will have failure along the way and you just got to kind of like take it on the chin and move on. So uh, I actually love it. I think it's actually them being responsive to their customers. And the point of Nike wasn't that everyone's going to be a, a sub six minute miler. It was that, 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 that sport and, and this idea, this like the fight that, you know, that the kind of the rebellious attitude that is, that is within that we're all seeking our own kind of personal victories. And that, that is what Nike is in my mind. And that doesn't just have to be on a field. So I, I love that not, not everyone wearing a Nike tennis shoe is a runner clearly. Right. And it's almost beside the point. And I, I just, I'll say this. I, I love, I love that they've actually been able to find these new avenues. They're doing stuff that is, it's almost like luxury streetwear. It's actually, it's, it's a totally different market and, and it's still Nike, but it shows just how malleable and flexible that brand can be. And I think like, that is cool. That, that, that actually is something I get excited about. And I love that answer because you took it above and beyond. So Nike is above and beyond the track. Yes. Yeah, it's a big part of the DNA. It's a big part of the heritage, but the, the brand is really about something much, much bigger. Yeah, which finds its expression in all of these different initiatives that are doing, which are often kind of rebellious or unforeseen surprising initiatives. Great answer. Yeah. And it's also, you can see why there's a, there's a metaphor there that we like, especially being in the footwear industry that from humble beginnings can come, come really great things. Right. Finding where you can keep the core and adapt for the changing environment and for the effects of scale, right? Because when you, the more you scale, the more, well, the more customers you have, the more opinions you have, the more pressures are going to come on. As so all those things, uh, and finding that adaptation that still sticks with something about the the core of what the brand is. Um, I could go into Nike too about Wyden and Kennedy and whether. I could dive into, do you guys have an agency you work with and what's that like and blah, blah, but we have spent an hour, we have spent our hour of time with you, Connor. So we'll save it for the follow-up Bright Ideas down the road with you instead. All right. Sounds good. Sounds um, good. Or obviously just further conversation, you know, visiting the store, for example, yeah. and doing well, something like that. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm happy to talk at any time. And you guys, this is, thanks for hosting as well, too, because this has been fun. Now I need to get some boots. I need to get some boots. 
I'll, I'll come. I noted it down. Twenty first and Sixth Street, right? Yeah, yeah. We're in, just look on your Google Maps. It's it's like a it's a it's an industry. There's like a an office building. You got to go up the elevator, but once you're in, it's fun. Please subscribe to Bright Ideas on your favorite podcast service. We'd like to thank once again our sponsors, Lexicon Branding and Kogan Page. For more information about the Bright Ideas podcast and Columbia Business School Brand Center, please visit brightideas.co.